have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10, and we're going to take a look at Hebrews chapter 10, 26 through 31, 26 through 31. As I said, we went on vacation last weekend. I was enjoyed that, had a great time. I was also glad I had a couple weeks to look at this very difficult passage. Let's begin today by reading it, and then I'm going to share a, a, a story and experience that another pastor had that relates to this passage. Let's look at it. Hebrews chapter 10, and let's read 26 through 31. So follow along. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Now you just take that verse and just read that verse out of context. That is some serious stuff right there, right? That really grabs you by the throat. But here's all that remains. There is no sacrifice for sins. Here's what remains. A terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. We know in the Old Testament they were stoned, they were cut off, they were separated, seemingly from, definitely from the people of God, seemingly even from God, we don't know. How much more though, how much more severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Well, hey, good morning. Aren't you glad you're here? Boy, that's some powerful, powerful stuff. As I was researching, studying, I ran across a story that uh, J.D. Greer in his book, Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart, How to Know For Sure You Are Saved. He shares this story. One afternoon, I was at a local basketball port, court, and I picked up a game of 21 with a guy I had sin, seen there a few times. He was quite a character. He had so many tattoos on his body, I wasn't sure what the actual color of his skin was, and so many piercings, he looked like he had fallen headfirst into a tackle box. He cursed like a sailor and boasted continually about the girls he was sleeping with. In other words, not the kind of guy you hope your daughter brings home. One day, as we played our game, I began to share my story of how I came to Christ. And about three sentences into it, he stopped, grabbed the ball and said, dude, are you trying to witness to me? And I said, uh, well, yes. He said, that's pretty awesome. No one has tried to witness to me for a long time. But dude, you're wasting your time. I grew up in a Baptist church. I went to a youth camp when I was 13. I asked Jesus to come into my heart. And for the next couple of years, I was a super Christian. I mean, I went to the youth group every week. I did the true love waits commitment to not have sex until I was married. I memorized verses. I went on mission trips. I even led other friends to Jesus. About two years after that, however, I discovered sex. One thing led to another, and a year or so later, I decided I didn't believe in God anymore. So now, I don't go to church, I don't pray, I do whatever I want. He then added, but here is what is awesome. The church I grew up in was Southern Baptist, and they taught eternal security. That means, once saved, Always saved. By the way, aren't you a Baptist? <laughs> and J.D. said there was an awkward silence. He went on. That means that my salvation at age 13 still holds, even if I don't believe in God anymore now. Once saved, always saved, right? That means that even if you're right and God exists and Jesus is the only way, I'm safe. So either way, works out great for me. 
Okay, it's your shot. And and how, how yeah, your shot, all right. What, what are you going to do that? What are you going to say? What do you say? What do you say to a person like that? He had prayed to ask Jesus into his heart, and all indications was that he was very sincere. He showed immediate fruit, getting excited about Jesus and getting busy for him as well. And we do believe, we do believe, and our church believes, that the Bible teaches eternal security. So, was he right? Once saved, always saved, to live however you want. Can he, because he made a decision at some point in the past, live with assurance that he is saved forever, regardless of how he lives right now. In fact, as I was reflecting on this these past couple weeks, just yesterday afternoon on Facebook, a pastor friend of mine posted this. He said, I saw a video the other day of our church in the past that reminded me of how many people have walked through the front doors of our church made salvation claims, got wet, expressed some feels, and then walked in out our back door, and today there's no evidence of Jesus or his gospel transformation in their lives. Well, this passage in Hebrews, as well as four other other ones that are similar, raise these kind of questions that are not only biblical, not only theological, but they're practical and they're, they're relational. You, they're personal. You probably could share your own story of someone that sounds like this. Well, where are we in the context of chapter 10? So let's, let's, I read that. We read it out of context. Let's look at it in context and kind of review since we've been broken up a little bit in this series. So notice in your notes, beginning back with verse 19. As believer priests who have complete confidence to enter into the most holy place. That's verse 19. By means of the wrath-satisfying blood of Jesus. That's verse 20. On the basis of the sinless mediation of our great high priest and ruler over us as God's people. Verse 21. On the basis of what Jesus has done, we take bold action to do three things in verses 22 through 25, and we've studied those. We take bold action to draw near in faith. We take bold action to hold fast to our hope we profess. And we take bold action to stay close to one another in love as we assemble together all the more as we see the day of Jesus' return. Now, we come to verse 26. And here's kind of the kind of the uh, an overview for if we persist in willfully sinning. Well, what is that? It's what he just talked about. If we persist in willfully sinning by forsaking Jesus as our great high priest and forsaking the assembling together of God's people. And how do we do that? By refusing to draw near in faith, by refusing to hold fast, by refusing to stay close. All that remains for such a person is certain expectation of frightening and fiery judgment at the hands of a living God. So that's kind of the context. Now, what is that? What's that saying to us? Well, here's what it's saying. Confidence to enter into God's holy presence is shown by taking bold action, not only to draw near, not only fast, not only stay close, but remain loyal, to remain loyal as new covenant believer priests. And why should we? Look again at verse 26. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of fire which will consume the adversary. So, what's the point? What's the point of verses 26 through 31? Well, here it is. The point is this. It is one of five warning passages. And so, the idea is remain remain loyal and... It is a warning. 
of what happens to those who don't. Okay? Remain loyal. Now, what's the big idea? Here's as simple as I can put it. So, you got a couple blanks there to fill in. Here it is. The main idea. The person who falls away from the faith is sure to fall into the fiery judgment of the living God. The person who falls away from the faith is certain to fall into the fire of God's judgment. When you fall away, you fall into something. And it is the fire of God. So, how are we going to tackle this? Well, that's a good question. We're going to ask six questions of this passage because if you don't understand the passage, this is probably one of the most misunderstood, misapplied passages as well as the other warning passages, but this one in particular. And it all happens because we don't ask the right questions and don't come up with the right answers from the Bible. And so this week, we're going to ask two initial questions and they're going to hone in on what sin is actually taking place. So, to remain loyal, we need to ask the right set questions and get the right answers. And so here's the first question that we're going to ask today. What is the sin in this warning? You can't avoid something. You don't know what it is. And if you don't accurately understand this sin, you are going to maybe you're going to become fearful. Man, you know, did I just sin and do something that there's no forgiveness for? Did I just did I just commit a sin or or, if, or how, go through a season of sinning? Anybody here ever gone through a season of sinning? Don't raise no 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 don't raise your hand don't raise your hand don't raise your hand. Appreciate the transparency. Yeah yeah because you know because the honesty is we should all be raising our hands. Am I right? Yeah. So did hey. Anybody willfully sin here recently? Yeah, and according to Brother Jim from uh, Lesson on Aiken, right? We all have willfully sinned. So, I don't know about you, but I'm getting nervous about this passage. And yet, we don't want to become so overconfident. Well, that's something I've never done or could never do that then we just move on and say, well, that's for so-and-so. You know, that's for the guy on the basketball court. You know, that's for the really bad people, Right? So, what is the sin in this warning? Uh, various translations here in the New American Standard, sin if we go on sinning willfully. Net Bible, if we deliberately keep on sinning. ESV, we, if we go on sinning deliberately. Christian Standard Bible, for if we deliberately go on sinning. You see the idea. Now, a couple things. First of all, this sin is more than just a deliberate sin. This is more than just. It is a deliberate sin. By the way, the word for willfully or deliberately is in the first, is mentioned first in the original language. It's the emphasis. This is something done willfully, but it's more than that. Why? Because as I just said, nearly all sin is willful and intentional, right? Okay. The word does mean doing something intentionally, purposefully, deliberately, knowingly, right? Now, as Jim taught from Achan a couple weeks ago, uh, Achan sinned deliberately when he took the booty from the battle of Jericho. I just love saying that. But he was not necessarily committing this sin. He deliberately, intentionally did what God said not to do, right? But he wasn't, I believe, committing this sin. In the New Testament, you have Ananias and Sapphira who willfully sinned and deliberately lied, not only to the Apostle Peter, but to the Holy Spirit himself, did it willfully, intentionally, and knowingly, even received divine discipline of instantly dropping dead in the church service. And yet, I believe they were saved, and I believe they did not commit this sin. How about you? How about me? Do we sin intentionally, knowingly, willfully, and deliberately? Sure we do. All the time. We're not sinless as Christians, but we should sin what? Less and less, right? We're not sinless, we should. But when, nevertheless, when we sin, it is usually, nearly always, intentional, purposeful, deliberate, and knowingly. But here's the good news from the book of Hebrews. There's a sympathetic high priest and a satisfactory atonement for intentional, 
purposeful and deliberate sins. There is mercy and forgiveness in the time of our need at the throne of grace. Can I hear an amen? Isn't that good? Yeah. And we see it in Hebrews 4, 15 through 16. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet what? Without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence. You don't have to doubt. You don't have to fear that he won't forgive your deliberate sin. Draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace and forgiveness to help in time of need. These are the promises and the privileges of the new covenant. Am I right? Sure they are. Sure they are. Hebrews 10, just right here, just right in this context. Look at verses 17 and 18 in your Bible. Right there in your Bible. Here's the promises of the new covenant. And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, lawless deeds, there is no longer any offering for sin. Now, verse 18, what verse 18 is saying is that Christ's sacrifice for our sins is so sufficient that when we sin, we don't have to offer a new sacrifice. There is no longer any need for offering a sacrifice for sin. But what verse 26 is saying, what verse 26 is saying is there's a sin that is such seriousness that there is no longer any sacrifice that could atone for that sin. So the sin in verse 26 has no such promise or hope of forgiveness. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins when this sin is committed. Secondly, so it's more than deliberate sin. Secondly, it's more than just persisting in deliberate sin. You say, well, okay, Uh, I'm covered, you know, Christ has atoned and I can be forgiven for deliberate sin. But what about when I persist in deliberate sin? Well, this sin in verse 26 is more than just persisting in deliberate sin. This sin in verse 26, the reason it says if we go on or in some Bibles, if we keep on sinning is because the verb there is in a present tense. So this isn't one act that you do one time that was real serious and you're done. This is something that is persistent, but it's more than just persistent, deliberate sinning. This sinning is more than what we often call backsliding, or as I said earlier, a season of sinning, right? This deliberate, persistent sinning in verse 26 isn't what we sometimes refer to as backsliding. Though, though, as we, I hope to show, backsliding can lead to this sin. It isn't this sin. So you're like, whew, okay, I can enter into a season of sin and it will be okay. No, entering into a season of sin can lead to the sin That's mentioned in verse 26. After all, many of us as true believers, sadly, have often persisted in deliberate sinning. And we have paid a painful price for it. No one escapes a season of sin unscathed. And we could have a lot of testimonies today to that. Just think of Samson, whose basically entire life seemingly was backsliding in a season of sin. God disciplines us for backsliding as a loving Heavenly Father. That's the message you find in Hebrews 12. But that is not the sin being talked about in this passage or in any other of the warning passages. Don't forget, Hebrews 11 is on the horizon, right? Hebrews 10 and then what? Hebrews 11. And in that hall of faith, there's all sorts of people, men and women in in Hebrews 11, that had all sorts of sinful seasons, right? Samson was one of them. I just got done reading through uh, the book of Judges. And then, then I was trying to put together, okay, some of these people in the book of Judges are in the hall of faith, and I'm just not quite sure how that works. Why? Because there's forgiveness for those kinds of sins that are very serious, and you pay a high price. 
It's not the legacy I want to leave my family. And I don't think it's the legacy you want to leave. But you know what? If never backsliding was the standard for getting into the hall of faith, or heaven for that matter, both would be empty. Okay, just think about that. In the New Testament, Peter, Peter certainly denied the Lord three times. And yet, he did not persist in that denial, and he soon repented of that denial, and was forgiven and restored by the Lord. Right? So we can do some really serious stuff. And still, there is a sacrifice for backsliding. But, such sin is not the sin that we are ultimately being warned about. So what is it? So what is it? Well, here you go. This sin is the persistent, yes, deliberate, yes, sinning, yes, of apostasy. It is a warning about apostasy. That's the sin. That's the sin that is being warned about. And it's persistent. And it's deliberate, but it's apostasy. Now, the Old Testament background is found in Numbers 15 and Deuteronomy 17. As we're going to look in the weeks ahead, the week ahead, when we look at the judgment on this sin, we see some ser- the background. So, turn your Bibles to Numbers 15. Turn your Bibles to Numbers 15 so you can kind of get the idea. Because he's going to eventually make a comparison between the Old Testament judgment on sin and the New Testament judgment on this sin. And there's going to be a difference. So we need to read these passages. So if you found Numbers 15 there at the front of your Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Numbers 15. Let's look at verses 27 through 31. Because the intentionality, the deliberateness, is found in this passage. Numbers 15, 27 through 31. Also, if one person sins unintentionally, then he shall offer a one-year-old female goat for a sin offering. The priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who goes astray when he sins unintentionally, making atonement for for him that he may be forgiven. You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally, for him who is native among the sons of Israel, a Hebrew, and for the alien or the foreigner who sojourns among them. So the idea is when you sin under the Old Testament and that sin against the law of Moses was unintentional, there could be atonement, there could be forgiveness. But, verse 30, if the person who does anything defiantly, whether he's a native, a Hebrew, or an alien, that is an Egyptian or any other ethnic group, that one is blaspheming the Lord. And that person shall be cut off from among his people because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. That person shall be completely cut off. His guilt will be on him. No atonement, no sacrifice, no forgiveness. Cut off, which we're going to see means capital punishment, physical death, separated from the people of God here on earth. And there's somewhat of a question of whether perhaps even cut off from God eternally. So, let's look at Deuteronomy 17. Deuteronomy 17. You can kind of hear the echoes of these passages in this verse, in, in this passage in Hebrews 10. So turn to Deuteronomy 17, fifth book in the Bible. Deuteronomy 17. And let's look at verses 2 through 7. Because again, this is in the mind of the author. And we need to get it in our minds. By the way, if you haven't read through the Old Testament recently, I urge you to do so. The New Testament is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. You won't understand the New Testament if you don't understand the Old Testament. So keep reading your Bibles. So here it is, Deuteronomy 17, 2 through 7. If there's found in your midst, in any of your towns, which the Lord your God is giving you, a man or a woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God by transgressing his covenant and has gone and served other gods and worshiped them. So there's a complete break. 
They had been part of God's covenant people. They had affirmed the covenant. They had practiced the Old Testament worship. And then they said, I don't want any more. I'm walking away. I'm embracing false gods, false religion, false worship. If someone has gone and served other gods and worshiped them, the sun, the moon, or any heavenly host, which I have not commanded, and if it is told you and you have heard of it, then you shall inquire thoroughly. Behold, if it's true, pay attention. The thing certain, and the thing certain, ah, if it's true, and the thing certain that this detestable thing has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out that man or that woman who has done this evil deed to your gates, that is, the man or the woman, and you shall stone them to death. Wow. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. It's got to be two or three. The hand of the witnesses shall be the first against him to put him to death. So if you're going to accuse someone, you better be ready to throw the first stone. Right? All right. So this this series. And afterward, the hand of all the people. So you shall purge evil from your midst. So this is the Old Testament background. In the Old Testament, a sin like this was called a high-handed sin. Because it was like you were shaking your fist in God's face saying, I don't want you, I don't believe in you, and I dare you to do something to me. All right? High-handed sin. Serious stuff. There's an intensity, an intentionality to the sin that is much more than simply missing the mark falling short, or even a season of sin. So, And this isn't just one act of high-handed rebellion, because let's be honest, maybe we don't shake our hand, but in our heart, we've shaken our fist at God. We've been angry and mad, and, and it's not just one act of that. This is a persistent, deliberate, unrepentant rebelling against the Lord and His new covenant. Ultimately, the sin that is warned about in five different passages in the book of Hebrews is the sin of apostasy. So let me give you a definition. Here's a definition of the sin of apostasy. The word in Greek basically means falling away. So apostasy is falling away from or forsaking the faith that we once believed and followed. Apostasy is falling away or forsaking the faith we once believed and followed. Did you you hear that in the echoes of the Old Testament, the Deuteronomy passage? Yeah. In fact, it's kind of like the unpardonable sin. How many of you are familiar with the unpart, what's, what's often called the unpardonable sin? And here's how I kind of compare these two. The unpardonable sin that's found in the Gospels, particularly Mark 3 is one place. Um, it's a sin for outsiders. It's a sin that looks at Jesus and the claims of Jesus and the miracles of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus and says... That's not the Holy Spirit. That's the devil at work in this guy. And I don't want anything to do with him. So you reject him and never place your faith in him. But the sin of apostasy is very similar, but it's a sin for insiders. At one time, you did accept Christ. You did embrace his miracles, his ministry, his message. But now you've decided, no, I'm walking away. So it's a sin for insiders after you publicly profess Christ, after you publicly identify with Him, after you have gathered and been a part of a local congregation. Notice verse 26. Look at verse 26, Hebrews 10. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth. This is a sin for insiders, not outsiders. Okay, so... What is this? Let's let's break it down a little more. Let's make sure we know what this sin is. So here's what we're going to do. The apostasy, this falling away, this willful, deliberate sin, is defined and explained by what precedes verse 26. So here it is, verse 26. And if you just take this verse out of context, you're going to get all messed up. And you're going to mess other people up, right? So you got to look at that little word. What's the first word in verse 26? What's the first word? Four. And so four 
points us in what direction? Points us back, right? To the previous verses. And it points you back to the previous lessons in this series. Four points back to verses 19 through 25. So let's look, let's work our way back. Basically, the sin in verse 26 is the sin that people are beginning to commit in verse 25. Not forsaking our own assembling together as is what? The habit of some. See, they were beginning this process. So apostasy begins with and includes forsaking gathering with God's people. But move back. Verse verse uh, 23. Apostasy is where you once held fast, but you let go the confession of our hope. And you do waver, right? Verse 23, move back. Verse 22, apostasy is where you don't draw near anymore to worship the one and true living God through Jesus Christ. You once drew near, now you no longer drew draw near. In fact, move back to verses 20 through 21. Apostasy in this passage, the willful, deliberate sinning in this passage, is where you now reject Jesus as the great high priest over the people of God, and you don't even want to be a part of the people of God anymore. More so, move all the way back to verses 17 In 18, you've now rejected the one sacrifice that could cover your sins. So do you see how moving back, here's all the things you're supposed to be doing, but if you willfully, deliberately quit doing those things, you're you're an apostate. Our friend on the basketball court was an apostate who has nothing but God's fiery judgment in front of him, according to the Bible. But apostasy is also defined and explained by what follows in verse 26. Because I'm telling you, anytime you're not sure what the Bible means, keep reading. Because eventually in the context, he's going to explain. So this took us back to 18 through 25. But verse 26 needs to be read in the context of verse 27 through 31. Particularly, look at verse 29. Well, let's just move through it. First of all, let's, let's, I, I just, let's not jump to 29. Let's move through it. Okay, so apostasy is defined by what follows. Well, in verse 26, this is a sin where there remains no atoning sacrifice. First thing you see. Second of all, verse 27, it's a sin for which the only thing that remains is frightening judgment, verse 27. Verse 29, it's a sin that deserves a much greater punishment than physical death. We just read in Deuteronomy, they stoned you, you died physically. What could be worse than physical death? Help me out here. Spiritual death. Spiritual death. So it's a sin for spiritual. But here, look at verse 29. Here's the sin of apostasy. Look at sin, uh, verse 29. How much ser- severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has, one, trampled underfoot the Son of God, spit on him, trample on him, reject him, and has regarded as unclean the most holy thing in all the world, the sacrifice of Christ for our sins? Ah, common. Nothing to be treasured. Nothing to be valued. Throw it away. And then third, he has insulted. And the idea is proud, proud, hubris. He has insulted the spirit of grace. Listen, when you insult and reject the spirit of grace, the only thing that's left is judgment. Judgment. So there you go. I think I've shown you from the Bible what this sin is. From the context... The Old Testament, the New Testament context. So, here's how you want to think about verse 26. It's a hinge in this passage. And the idea is this. What precedes is the right response to Jesus as our great high priest. And what follows here is the wrong response. Gotcha? See what he's doing? 
And apostasy is the wrong response. Okay? So, let me... I think I, I wrote it in your notes. The sin of apostasy in this warning passage, let's be very specific now, is persisting in deliberately falling away from one's faith in Jesus as the great high priest and forsaking the assembly of his people. All right? Let me repeat the main idea again. The person who falls away from the faith is sure to what? Fall into fiery judgment. Make sense? You fall away, you fall into. Fall away, fall into. Now, how does this persistent... Here's the second question for today. How is this persistent, deliberate sin of apostasy, how does it occur? How does it happen? How does it occur? How does it happen? Do, do people go to bed being faithful Christians and wake up being apostates? No, 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 not at all. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to, for the rest of the time we have, I'm going to give you an overview of the five warning passages, not ten, five, five warning passages in the book of Hebrews, okay? And I'm going to take you through what I had to go through for the last couple of weeks because I want you to understand what is going on here? Well, first of all, there's a progression of warning passages in the book of Hebrews. And if you look there, I've, I've gathered them. There's five of them. First one comes in chapter 2. Second one comes in chapter 3. Third one comes in chapter 6. Fourth one comes in chapter 10. So we're, we're, we're diving in on the fourth warning passage that assumes you already know about the other two or the other three. And there's going to be a fifth one in chapter 12. And here's what I did. The reason I wrote them that way is because there's all this progression and connection between them. And somehow my Word, Microsoft Word, has lost the ability to draw lines. I used to draw arrows and lines. I can't do that anymore. They took it away from me or hit it. So here's what I want you to do. From warning one to warning five, I want you to draw arrows. Because there's a connection between them. They talk about hearing the Word of God and how you respond to the commands of the Word of God. Then I want you to take warnings 2 and 3. I want you to do the same thing because there is a connection between them. In connection 2, it talks about don't hardening your heart. And in, in warning... Uh, oh, I got that all wrong. Sorry. Draw to warning 2 and 4. Did I mess you up? Sorry about that. You got some interesting lines going on in your paper. One and two. Five, see how I got them? One and five, two and four. One and five have to do with hearing the word and, and, and obeying it. Two and four. Two talks about don't harden your heart. Four is what happens when you do harden your heart. You deliberately, willfully commit this sin. See the connection? And then, by warning number three, I want you to get a star because that's kind of like the meat of the sandwich. That's kind of like the really important one. And typically, when you, when you hear the warning passages of Hebrews, everybody talks about Hebrews 6. Because, and there's a reason why. Because this structure has brought you to that. Are you with me? Okay, I just want you to see there's a little progression. And you can have some fun. And look, I've, writ I've, I've written these warnings out, the heart of the warnings out. And you can see all sorts of repeated themes, right? Because here in chapter 10, in the context, it talks about the living God. And then in the last, in, in the last uh, warning, it ends with that idea of the, our God is a consuming fire. So there's all sorts of fun things. Here's what I want you to see, though. As you read through these... You realize this, apostasy, to quote casting crowns, is a slow fade. It is a slow fade. How's the song go? No one, come on you casting crown people. No one, no, anyway, no one something, what is it Todd? No one crumbles, thank you, crumbled, who's crumbling? No one crumbles in a day, it is a slow fade. 
It's a slow fade. No one crumbles in a day. It's a slow fade. And that's what you see. It starts out here in number one, don't neglect, don't drift. You know, don't just, don't, don't drift, don't neglect. And then it grows and it grows till here. Don't willfully, deliberately persist in sin. And boom, don't miss out on the sink. Here's the idea. Apostasy is a slow fade that's fueled by a variety of obstacles we face in the race to the finish. It's fueled by a variety of obstacles. And so here I have you. I want you to put some words in there into the chart. You'll see the progression, the five warning uh, passages in the progression of the slow fade. Let's begin there on the left side. The first warning passage, right neglecting. It begins with neglecting. Are you with me on what we're doing here? Neglecting. And then it moves to hardening. See, if you neglect the word for too long, you begin to harden, hardening. And then hardening your heart leads to stagnating to where you grow no more. You quit growing. You, re, you, you, you grow older in the Lord, but you don't grow up in the Lord. There's a real problem in our culture right now with young men particularly growing older, but not growing up. It's deformity. It's not natural. It's not right. Right? Right? Yeah. And guess what? It's not right in the spiritual realm either. So we have a lot of spiritual adolescents that are playing video games in their mother's basement spiritually and aren't growing growing up in the Lord. Okay? So hardening, stagnating though, you stagnate for too long, you begin to... Forsaking. Remember? 10, 22 through 25. You forsake drawing near. You forsake holding fast. You forsake assembling together. And if you persist on this, you begin to refuse. Refusing. And outright rebellion. Against the Lord. Do you see the progression in that? Now here's the here's the here's the serious side of this. Do you see yourself in that progression at all? Do you see someone you love? Someone you care about in that progression? Well, if you do, whether it's you or someone else, well these warnings are for us. They're for you. Right? Because it's a slow fade. So, don't think that if, as a Christian, well, I can just hang out here and neglect the Word of God and it'll be okay. Don't think that you can start hardening your heart against what the teaching and the preaching and the spirit conviction you get if you're born again. Don't think that you can stagnate in your spiritual growth. And don't think, listen, this is real common in today's Christianity, that I can forsake my time with the Lord. I can forsake the assembling with God's people. I can be a Christian without a local church. Really? That characterizes apostates, not persevering believers. The punishment of these warnings intensify, and they they get their most fierce forceful, fiery, and frightening right here in chapter 10. And the pattern is instructive. There is a pattern. So, as you read each of these warning passages, not perfectly, but there's this pattern in these passages. And there's these five components, okay? I'll let you read that and think through that as you look at these warning passages. I just want you to know, and we'll return to this next week. Here's the idea. Remember, the person who falls away from the faith is sure to what? Fall into fiery judgment. So here's what I want to leave you with. For our last five minutes, I want to give you five characteristics of persevering believers. Because here's the idea. In this pattern of these five warning passages... There's always the call to persevere. In fact, you could say all of Hebrews is a call to persevere in your faith. The antidote 
to neglecting the Word of God is to persevere in paying attention to it. The antidote to hardening your heart is to persevere in having a soft heart that responds to the Word of God. The antidote to stagnating in your growth is persevere through the hard times and keep growing. The antidote to forsaking and refusing is to not do those things and instead push through, persevere in your faith. But this isn't bootstrap theology where you just try harder. Go get them, okay? Let me give you five characteristics from the book of Hebrews. I'm drawing these particularly from chapter 3 and chapter 10, and here they are. First of all, to avoid this sin, to not be a part of this, persevere, persevering believer priests, number one, keep their faith fixated on Jesus. Keep your faith fixated on Jesus. We are told two times in this passage, consider him, meditate on him, think on him. In fact, you know what all of Hebrews is about? It's about fixating on Jesus. Now, here's the scary thing. You know why you don't hear study Hebrews more and why we don't understand Hebrews better? Two reasons. One, we don't know the Old Testament. But two, we don't know who Jesus is. We're just like these guys in chapter 6. He says, I'd like to tell you more about Melchizedek. But you're too immature in the faith to even understand it. Listen, if you have a small view of Jesus as merely a savior in the past, you're not going to persevere in your faith. You need a big Jesus that's not just savior, but Lord, priest, prophet, king. Right? Right? If you still got the same, you see, see what, what we do, we, we got Jesus on the dashboard. Remember when dashboards used to be metal? Remember when they used to be metal and you could put little magnet dudes hanging on there? And people would put little statues of Jesus so he could keep them safe when they're driving, right? A bobblehead Jesus, I don't know. But it's a little Jesus that you carry in your pocket and he can help you in time of need. No, get fixated on a big view of who Jesus is. Number two, persevering believer priests understand that perseverance involves the total person. The reason I wanted the total person, the reason I wanted to show you that pattern is because the warnings are not just turn or burn. They include exhortation. They speak to the head, the heart, and the hands. And the reason most people don't persevere in the faith is they focus on all head or all heart or all hand. They have a social justice Jesus, all hand. They have a theology Jesus, all head. Or they have a miracle Jesus that's all heart and emotion. But you know what? None of those is Jesus. Jesus is all of that, right? And if you talk to people who are apostates, who have forsaken then left the church. Often they have hang-ups and are in balance, and they're either all head, all heart, or all hand. Number three, persevering believer priests diligently guard their hearts. Oh, my gosh. Warning number two is all about hard hearts, unbelieving hearts. Apostasy begins in here. That's why it seems like it happens overnight, because it's, 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 it's in here. And they fall away way before they go away. All right. Number four, persevering believer priests follow through on their faith commitment to the very end. All sorts of passages all the way to the end. We'll talk more about that next week. Finally, persevering believer priests remain fully convinced that perseverance is a congregational affair. It is a congregational affair. And I can't point you to anything more then verses 24 and 25, right after he says, don't forsake assembling, he says, he introduces the sin of apostasy. So, hey, guess what? We got grow groups. You're here today and not just coming to just worship. These are all the things you do to persevere in the faith. And it's not just because you show up. It's because you come with the right heart and you're, you're, you're applying and you're learning. Man, isn't, is that good stuff? Man, that is good stuff. Well, I've introduced you to the five warning passages and what the sin is. You know what we're going to ask next week? Who commits this sin?
Is it believers that lose their salvation? Is it hypothetical? I'm warning you about this, but you could never do it because you're eternally secure. Or is it something else? I'm not sure what the answer is going to be next week. I'm still studying. So you come back and we'll find out because it's really important. Who can commit this sin? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. You're you're a loving God. You're a consuming fire, but you're a compassionate fire that wants to warn us of the error of our ways and the seriousness of drift, neglect, hardening, stagnating, and forsaking so that we don't refuse you, so we don't reject you. Father, there's a lot of guys like the guy on the basketball court that have a false sense of eternal security, who think once saved, always saved means once saved, always saved to live any way they want versus once saved, always saved to persevere to the end. Oh, Father, give us grace to hear. Tenderize our hearts. Let us apply this, think on this this week and come back, not to hear more, to fill our empty little heads, or to make our heads big, or to make our hearts big, or get our hands busy, but to be total people who follow hard after you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Persevere this week. Persevere in your faith.